Obesity rates in different countries vary. We all know that obesity has increased over the last three or four decades. And we also know that there's inequalities in obesity rates, both between and within countries. <coughs> and because there are so many different ways in which one can think about obesity, we've started thinking about obesity as a complex system. And there are different models of understanding obesity. So to start with, um, I think it's good to think about how the globalization of obesity reporting happened. That was in 1997. <coughs> the World Health Organization expert consultation of obesity decided on BMI, body mass index cutoff points for obesity, body mass index cutoffs of 25 for uh, overweight and cutoff points of 30 for obesity first came into place. Because prior to that time, before that time, uh, obesity was estimated in different ways in different countries. So having a unified way of reporting was useful because they could show that obese, while obesity rates in the United States were, were, were high, the um, obesity rates in some other countries were equally high, if not higher. I'll draw your attention to countries like Kuwait, for example, that have similar obesity rates to the United States, but more especially small island countries like Nauru, <coughs> French Polynesia, the Cook Islands, where the obesity rates are much higher than uh, in, uh, in the United States. And also that it wasn't just the so-called developed countries that had significant rates of obesity. Um, it was also countries like Peru, uh, like, South, uh, like, like Turkey, uh, like South Africa. The emerging nations also had significant rates of, of, of obesity. And now you'd see, um, you know, obesity is emerging in places like Thailand. It's certainly here at high rates in, in Malaysia. <coughs> it's increasing in, in, in Vietnam. Everywhere there are rates that are in increasing. So it's very much a, a, global, a global problem. I could talk a lot about the different rates of obesity, but it's enough to say that um, there are websites like the International Obesity Task Force where you can look at the obesity rates and maps across the world, across different countries, and look at how the rates have changed in, in different countries. This is a map for, for adults showing that the rates are very high in uh, North America, but also in Mexico the rates are similarly high to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, other North American countries. Rates are high in Europe, rates are high across the Middle East. In respect of childhood, there's a lot of reporting of childhood overweight. And sometimes there's a confusion between the reporting of overweight and obesity. So uh, rates of obesity in children, that is the equivalent of body mass index more than 30, are much, much lower than in adults, but often it's reported as overweight plus obesity. So there's a, a lot of um, media coverage, literature about rates of increase in childhood overweight, but actually the rates in, of obesity in, in children still remain very small. But the concern with children is that children become adults, and when they become adults, uh, it's very difficult to, to, to reverse 
and usually it's a it's a, a one-way road to from increasing overweight towards obesity. So this is the the, the major concern. There's also in in public health terms a concern with children because. Uh, Attempts to reduce obesity in adults have largely failed, have not been successful. There's no single success story anywhere in the world. You can't say that a country is reducing its adult obesity rates. There are small studies, small places where there have been small-scale interventions where they've had some success, but none of these interventions have been able to extrapolate across, uh, across uh, an entire nation. <coughs> So if rates of adult obesity have increased, there's a concern about childhood overweight because um, this is associated with um, increased uh, uh, obesity when children become adults. You can look across a number of countries, the United States, England, Australia, all of them having increased rates of obesity. But we can also look at a country like Chile in Latin America where the rates of, uh, of childhood overweight have increased rapidly in recent years. In a country like Brazil, where the same thing is happening. So rates are increasing in many, many places. Except, in the last 10 years or so, there's evidence from nine countries, Australia, China, England, France, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United States, that shows that the rate of childhood overweight is stabilizing, is not increasing anymore. That's not to say we shouldn't be considered that it's a success story, because the rates are still, you know, at a certain level, uh, but they, they've stopped increasing in some countries. It's also a concern because nobody knows why. There's no, you can't attribute the plateauing of, of obesity, of childhood overweight rates in these countries to any specific intervention or specific policy. And... Um, I was talking with the uh, French epidemiologists in Paris earlier this year. We were talking about this, and they said, we'd like to believe it's our policies, but really we don't know why, why these rates are coming down. And it's easy to understand or to, to give a reason that his parents are taking control of their children's diet and physical activity and so on. But really, there's no, no hard evidence about this. There's another piece to this as well. In the United Kingdom, it's unpublished data, uh, it looks like the stabilization of childhood overweight is really two things that are happening. Among lower socioeconomic status uh, families, the childhood rates of overweight are carrying on increasing, whereas among the ones of higher socioeconomic status, they're going down. So one rate is carrying going up, Another rate is coming down, and overall you end up with a, with a plateau. We don't know if the same effect is in, in these other countries as well. It might be, but the, 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 the English data is not published yet, so we, we might find in the next few years that there are actually socioeconomic status differences, inequalities in, in, in rates of uh, increasing uh, uh, or changing patterns of overweight. I've mentioned inequality, and inequality is a major issue that structures uh, obesity rates and rates of overweight. This is a slide that shows inequality by the Gini coefficient, ratio of highest 20% um, of income to low, bottom 20% of income in relation to uh, female obesity in a range of countries. And it's more or less a... Uh, a straight line regression with some outliers, of course, um, where the rates are highest 
in the United States where rates and levels of uh, economic inequality are highest. Levels are lowest in a country like Japan where the uh, rates of inequality are, 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 are lowest among these country, countries. And you have a number of countries like the UK, Australia, New Zealand, France, uh, Canada, Spain, Belgium, and so on, where you know they sit pretty well on a line where the 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 the, 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 uh, the Gini coefficient, the relative uh, inequality in uh, income distribution, wealth distribution within a country, uh, it, it tracks onto 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 obesity rates. That's in industrialized and economically developed countries. The uh, relationship between inequality and obesity is is uh, is, is not not so straightforward. Um, in wealthier countries, generally the um, uh, poorer people are likely to have um, uh, higher rates of obesity. Uh, this is a slide that shows um, socioeconomic status and obesity in women, and it represents a percentage of studies that demonstrate a particular effect. So overall, there's about three, uh, over 300 studies um, and showing that, for example, uh, women with lower education are more likely to be obese. Um, uh, women with lower employment status are more likely to be obese. Women with lower income are more likely to be obese. So we look at the first chart, the positive versus the negative. When we look at countries <coughs> with medium or low um, human development index, the relationship is a little bit different. It's not completely as you'd expect it to be, but to some extent it is. The higher rates of uh, obesity are found in better educated women, found in, uh, uh, in women who have higher incomes. The relationships are not so strong for men. It seems that there's a little bit of kind of social, socioeconomic status blindness when it comes to men. That is a greater acceptance of, of, of a higher body weight among men of higher socioeconomic status in high income countries, for example. And, and uh, uh, this, this makes the, makes the relationship uh, a little bit different. <coughs> okay, so that illustrates the kind of problem that it is. But it doesn't really say what kind of solution you might seem to want to find. When we think about how we would frame it as a problem, you can't really say that it's down to um, genetics or down to environmental factors or down to the nature of the food supply down to psychological factors about, about eating and about the body, about inequality, about stigma. You can't say it's about employment. It's all of these things. And this is what makes it a complex problem because it engages so many different ways of thinking. <clears throat> and when there are so many different ways of thinking, each of them has... Um, uh, each discipline that deals with this issue has a different way of talking about the problem. Yeah. Yes. Um, for the case of the, the, the rules, is there any study that explains the reason why there's a, actually no, 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 no,
In Nauru, I've, I've had a student who was working there, and there is no good single explanation. No, there's no single explanation for any of these things. It, there's a likelihood that there's a genetic predisposition. That's the first thing. But how different this genetic predisposition is to everybody else's is a good question. Because everybody, every society has a genetic predisposition to obesity. This is why you find it everywhere. So there must be some special predisposition. Um, the genetics of obesity is becoming much more complex. And to the present day, it can only explain about 5% of the variation in obesity within any population. Whereas heritability studies that look at the relationships of twins and obesity suggest that there must be over half of the obesity is heritable. And that means that it, 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 it travels through families in some way. And it also means that the genetics must be quite strong. But genetic studies so far have only identified a tiny proportion, can only explain a tiny proportion of it. So it's not, genetics is one part of the story. Another part of the story, story that we published on quite recently was on colonialism. That uh, colonial systems of food, the British introduced ways of food preparation and diets and so on that predispose to obesity, to a society in which a large body is heavily valued. So uh, by moving people away from traditional foods, by moving them away from traditional methods of, of preparation, they created a market for uh, increasing, increasing body size. So there's no single explanation. No single explanation. If the rates in Nauru are so high, it also means that the rates in other countries could also go up to you know, much higher levels than they are now. So um, this is the thing. If, some, if anybody knew what the reason was, they would, could earn a lot of money because, because the market is open for a, for a clear solution to obesity. Everybody wants to know. So, 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 you know, there are many explanations and there are pathways towards obesity. One pathway that's being followed in, in, in Nauru, other ones that are being followed in Malaysia, another one that's being followed in France, another one that's being followed in, uh, in, uh, in China, and so on. So it's many, many different, many different kinds of problems and many different kinds of ways of talking about it. So the challenge, yes? Uh, what do you networks here? Uh, networks. In, um, there was a, a study in uh, 2007 that showed that obesity travels in networks in the United States. Be in contact. So you can trace a network from a person through to their friend, through to the friend's cousin who lives on the other side of America, and there is still an association. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's, I guess we've talked about it as a sort of like a, a kind of contagion of ideas about yeah. behaviors around. Again, the authors of, of, of this paper have no good explanation. Mm -hmm. 
other than it doesn't have to be just that I know you. It's just I know I know you, but you know her, and she knows someone else, and 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 it will travel through some common understanding, some common behaviours that make you friends. Yeah. I think underlying some of that is the kind of understanding that people tend to copy each other's behaviours, mm-hmm. which sort of works if you've seen it, but it might be that the copying gets transmitted. Mm-hmm. So the, the person at the end of the notebook is really the next, don't need to see each other. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of, well, we all like to do the same sorts of things. That's why we're associated with each other. It's very common to say something yeah. like this. Okay, if we take it now to thinking about uh, uh, complexity and systems, the first and most basic system is, is that, of, that of animal feeding. I've put a sheep on this slide, but it shows the basic relationship between um, meeting your energy requirements and meeting your desired, uh, desire for food. And it's a very basic and functional set of relationships, the hunger drive to meet your energy needs. And energy needs are what drive everything with respect to food intake. If you get enough dietary energy, um, then all the other nutrients that you get will depend on the type of food that you consume to get that energy. So if you eat a lot of fruit and vegetables, then you consume a lot of, you get a lot of micronutrients as well. If you eat, consume a lot of high fat, high, you know, high sugar foods, then you can meet your energy needs, but you won't get your micronutrient intakes. So it depends on how you get that food. Now this is for animals. For humans, it's horribly more complicated, much more complicated, largely because there's a, um, neocortical in, in involvement. We have big brains, and we eat not as individuals, but we eat in social environments. And so there's social ways in which we eat. How we eat, we eat because of emotion, we eat when we're unhappy, we eat when we're happy, we eat with our friends, we eat without our friends. Uh, we eat according to social norms. In some places we eat on the streets, in other places we don't eat on the streets. There's many, many different complexities to, to, to how, how we eat. And so controlling eating is something that can, is, is fundamentally social and also fundamentally cultural. So for example, in Japan, you wouldn't walk along the street eating food. It's just not what you do. And Traditionally, traditionally, at least in France, people sit down at a table and eat together. And it would be a negative thing to eat because you're hungry 20, 20, 20 minutes before you eat a meal. Parents would traditionally say, wait, you know, until, until mealtime. I'm saying traditionally because, of course, everything is changing everywhere. Uh, but other people, the relationality in food consumption is one of the things that can either uh, can control people's food consumption or it can allow it to continue and continue. So, so for example, when people eat together and they're eating buffet foods, they're more likely to eat more because they're eating socially. So, and for example, if you're in a meal that's structured, eating in a, in a restaurant where the, meal, where the food is structured, you might have a first course, you might have a second course, and then you get to the dessert, and you say, well, no, I'm not hungry. And then one person says, I'll have a dessert. And they say, oh, okay, I'll have a dessert. Because somebody else persuades you, well, you could actually eat it, and, and, and you do. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, you know, the social factors in, in food and eating are, you know, 
many of many different types and and and, and many different you know uh, many different complexities how you eat what you eat and the western way of eating uh, is 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 one that now contributes to obesity because we can eat anywhere, anytime. You look in Kuala Lumpur and there's food available 24-7. You can find food at 3 o'clock in the morning if you want to. Roll out of bed. Oh, you know, I can't sleep. Okay, I'll you know, go and find myself some noodles somewhere, perhaps. So, so, you know, just the structures of food provisioning affect your, 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 your likelihood to eat. And I should also say that it's very easy for people to overeat. It's fundamental to the way we are that we, you know, eat when the food is available. And, uh, and, but now food is always there. We never have periods of, of hunger or seasonal hunger or starvation in, in many places. There are places I know like Vietnam where, you know, we're coming out of that now. And so the challenge is, is how to control these things before obesity becomes a big problem, for example. Okay. The idea of capital was talked about a, a previous time, and one can think about obesity as coming out of how uh, capital is formed. So, for example, we've talked about social capital and economic capital, and they come together under some larger form of, uh, of, uh, of uh, symbolic capital. There's also cultural capital, embodied capital, institutional capital, and so on. Many different forms. These were ideas that were put together by the French sociologist and anthropologist Pierre Bourdieu. And if one thinks about socioeconomic status, well, it's just a limited form of capital that we're thinking about. There are other forms of capital. In some places, having a large body carries cultural capital. And we can think about Nauru as a place where a large body has traditionally carried cultural capital. And you could look in India, for example, probably Pakistan as well, where having you know, a larger body size carrying more weight would carry symbolic value. And this is a, a form of cultural capital. In the West, uh, having a thin body carries more cultural capital because it's much harder work to stay thin when there's so much food around and it's so easy to be obese. So what becomes valued is the thing that is difficult to do. So, and, and uh, I think as a generalization, this works across many, uh, many different societies. This is the complexity map for all complexity maps. This is the British government foresight obesity systems map, which attempts to relate all the factors that were known by 2007 associated with obesity, over 100 factors. Now, you can't see what those factors are. And this has been much criticized, but it's been used as, a, as, a, as a, an instrument for policy thinking. Because what it says is that you can't attribute it to food consumption. In the middle, there's energy balance. If you eat too much, don't get enough physical activity, then you put on weight. Of course, if you eat too much, then you can put on weight. If you don't get enough individual physical activity, then you can put on weight. But then underpinning this is your biology, your genetics, whether you were breastfed, uh, there's epigenetic factors that contribute to your predisposition for obesity. And then there's also individual psychology, that how you eat, what you eat, you may sometimes eat even though you're not hungry, and you know you're not hungry, and you know you shouldn't eat, and you're ambivalent about whether you should, but you still do. 
So it's another gatekeeper is the, is the psychological one. Uh, but outside of those, you also have the activity environment. That is, if you want to walk around Kuala Lumpur, it's not so easy. If you want to cycle in Kuala Lumpur, it's even less easy. If you want, to, if you want your children to walk to school, then the schools need to be in the same place. So the activity environment is important. And I've been in places where, in the United States where I've gone for a walk and then somebody pulls up in a car and says, are you okay? And they're not inquiring about my mental health, why I might be, but, but saying, you, sh you know, people don't usually walk here. People get in the motor car. And I'm saying, no, I'm just going for a walk. And they say, this is a strange behavior, you know? Uh, whereas, 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 whereas where I live, it's a very normal behavior. In fact, when people have a day off, they go walking in the country. This is just a, a normal cultural activity to go walking in the country, finding nature and so on. This is, this is a very usual thing. Uh, there are also the food production system. How does the food get to the places where people eat it? There has to be uh, an agricultural system, there has to be a, a food manufacturer system, a distribution, a retail. All of these things contribute to you know, what people eventually eat. And it's been argued that if you can regulate the food production system, then you could regulate obesity through things like taxation of saturated fats, for example, which they've tried in Denmark, and through, uh, through taxation of, of sugars and sugary drinks and so on, which they, they've tried in a number of country, countries. And then there are societal and cultural influences which really create the rules for how you should behave. Because obesity, in this sense, doesn't come out of um, just uh, 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 energy balance. It comes out of the way that people live their lives. And people's lives are socially and culturally and relationally constructed. Okay, just to, to, to illustrate the kinds of obesity interventions that came from this map, uh, one of them was about safety perceptions. If you think that somewhere is not safe, then you may not walk there. For example, there are parks in the United States that are very beautiful, but people don't walk in them because you might get robbed. You might meet the wrong sort of people, and, and so you don't, you don't walk in them. You could put tax on food, but if you tax food, and the cheapest food is the high energy dense food, then you could be taxing the poorest people. So that's another concern. How do you tax? Against, against these things, if there are no real alternatives to the high energy dense foods. Um, you could tax individuals on the food that they consume individually. So you could put a specific tax on certain kinds of foods, like uh, fizzy drinks, for example, like, like soda, like, like sweetened carbonated drinks. So, you know, certain things are, 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 are um, uh, made more difficult to consume. You could improve food literacy. That means you could help people know how to cook. Because often, if people don't cook, they don't use raw ingredients. If you use, if you cook, then you have control over the ingredients that you use. It sounds very basic, but it's, but if you hand over your control to the producers of, of mass food, then they choose the ingredients. And often if you're buying commercially prepared meals, then the people who make those foods need to make a profit. So they may actually use cheaper ingredients to be able to make, to make that profit. So 
there's a whole range of, of, of possibilities. Interventions at the early life stage. Uh, should you be intervening before children come to school? Should you be privileging certain kinds of, of, uh, of uh, feeding patterns? And at the bottom here, I put penalized parents because there have been children that have been taken away from their parents, uh, who be, who, children who've become severely obese and have been taken away from their parents in the UK. Uh, because it was seen as a case of child abuse. His parents should know better than to allow their children to become so big, unhappy, and unhealthy. So it, there's a precedent in law in, 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 all, in, in all of this. Okay. This is that, the same map of complexity, which has arrows according to policy interventions. And what it's trying to do is to say, well, if we intervene in, for example, let's take an example of food tax, then we can alter the fiber content of food and drink. We can change the kinds of foods that people get. It will have an impact. Uh, we can impact on portion size. It can impact on the energy density of foods. It can impact on the palatability of food, and it can impact on whether people choose certain foods. So saying, well, if you change one thing, it will have impacts in different parts of the system. And sometimes these are not so predictable. So if you change some aspect of behavior, then people compensate with something else. And that's the problem with obesity. If you take a physical activity intervention, then it may have an impact somewhere else that the physical activity intervention may result in people using a, a different form of transport which takes them somewhere else, which means they may ultimately be eating more or spending more time in a place where, where um, uh, uh, they're more likely to be uh, consuming the wrong kinds of foods that contribute to obesity. Okay. The challenges with obesity are how to characterize the problem. We know that the numbers are going up, and we can characterize it in this way, but we can't characterize it in terms of a specific intervention. There's no simple intervention. Translation across the disciplines, it's not clear. Uh, that if you're a psychologist, you'll talk about obesity in one way. Uh, if you're a physiologist, you'll talk about it another way. If you're a clinician, you'll talk about it another way. And these different disciplines need to talk to each other. Economists will talk about it as well in a different way. And there are you know, economists who are seriously engaging with obesity because it has impacts on health systems and health system uptake. It also has direct impacts on the economy through time lost from work, for example, due to illness. And both of those things are, are, are being modeled in a number of countries. It's a multi-level problem, it's multifactorial, and it's temporal, it changes in time. How to capture all of those things. And it's likely that in different countries it will be different. The levels will vary, the factors will vary, and the time rate of change will also vary. So it's not just something that increases steadily. In the United States and in Denmark, they know that there have been two peaks of obesity increase. It doesn't just go up, it may go up in relation to particular things that have changed politically, for example. Uh, what are the tipping factors? We don't know what makes things, what makes it move to obesity, or what makes uh, obesity suddenly increase. Don't really know. Okay, I'm gonna finish with just this. Uh, what to do? Obesity falls into two categories. You can either prevent or you can treat. Prevention can start with self-discipline. 
and in most places this is what's, what, what it falls down onto, that you should be able to control yourself. Alternatively, there's social control. Other people notice when people put on weight. Or alternatively, there could be political regulation through taxation, for example. In terms of treatment, weight management, when it's done in groups, works much better than individuals trying to control their own weight. Because in a group, you know, you know, I'm coming to be weighed once a week and I, everybody else is looking at my weight and, and I have to keep my pride in, in showing that I'm able to, to, to reduce my weight. So this peer pressure in a social control environment seems to work very well. But then people drop out of those things because they don't really like the pressure that comes with having to keep up with these things. Cognitive behavior therapy and psychology also works as a, you know, interventions that will change feeding behavior, feeding practices work very well. The most effective one is surgery. Somebody severely obese uh, bariatric surgery is extremely effective in reducing obesity, but you have to be severely obese to get to this point. And again, in Malaysia, for example, there's a real boom in bariatric surgery, obesity surgery, starting to happen as a, as a, as a new, new possibility. Pharmacological intervention, in terms of medicines, really, there's only one really effective one that's on the market at the moment. And there's another one that's, uh, that, that, that's on the way, but there's a history of, of, uh, of uh, uh, medical treatments, pharmacological treatments for obesity that simply do not work because people practice compensatory behavior. So many of these medications either alter metabolism, um, or, and some of these medications in the past have been addictive. Some of them are mood-altering, mind-altering, so they're associated with things like psychosis, suicidal behavior, and, and, and so anything that alters something in the mind that's related to appetite may alter other things. So that's another part of the complexity. So that's where I'll stop.